This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled The Problem of Evil, given on September 8, 1991, at the Center for Sacred Sciences, Eugene, Oregon. This morning I'm going to give a talk about the problem of evil. The problem of evil, of course, is one of the great problems that any religion must address itself to. It's a problem that's interested human beings since as far back as we know that they've kept records and interests us today because essentially the problem reduces to the problem of our suffering. But let's first uh, get an idea of what is evil. That's a good question and uh, I always like to turn to the dictionary in cases like this. It's an objective, unbiased view. <laughs> and let's see what it says here. Actually, it's very interesting about the word evil. It has almost no etymological history. It comes from one of the Norse languages, and it doesn't have one of these histories you can trace all the way back. So you can't read any uh, extra meanings into it. Uh, and then there are a couple of entries here. One is all about bad character and so forth, and that one really doesn't concern us as much, I think, as this one. The fact of suffering, misfortune, and wrongdoing. And that's A, and then B is a cosmic evil force. And I think that this is very well put, very simply put and very well put. Just the fact of suffering, misfortune, and wrongdoing, and this idea of some cosmically evil force. So let's stay with those basic sort of ideas. All other ideas of evil sort of stem from this. So what is suffering? If we're going to uh, talk about evil being the fact of suffering, misfortune, and wrongdoing, and so forth, we have to come to some understanding of what is suffering. So give me some examples of suffering. You tell me, what is suffering? Disease. Disease. Sitting in the cold while the wind blows past you. We can, that one we can do something about. <laughs> Let's close the door. Okay. Disease. What else here? Hunger. Hunger? Death. Death. Good. Heartache. Heartache. Let's stop for a second here. We have things like uh, disease and hunger are sort of sensual sufferings, having to do with the senses, pain, those sort of things. Then we have heartache is more emotional. Heartache, loneliness. What else here? Confusion. Confusion. Okay. And intellectual suffering. Violence. violence. Violence can be all of those things. Violence can be physical. You can feel the effects of it. It can be emotional, just the threat of violence. And it can be um, intellectual. It's this business of wrongdoing. Why do people commit violence? Good one. Embarrassment. Well, embarrassment certainly is. <laughs> Anxieties. Anxiety. Fear. Fear. Doubt. Conflict. With Conflict. Very good. Now, let's go back. I don't know if we'll remember all of them. But if we uh, consider these terms, we see that they all have an opposite. Disease has health. Hunger has satisfaction. Heartbreak has, what, companionship, love. Violence has peace. Doubt has certainty. What were some of the other ones we mentioned? Conflict, Conflict has peace or, or harmony. And we notice all these terms are linked to some opposite term. So when we talk about suffering here, and when we talk about evil, 
We're talking uh, always in relation to uh, something else. We, in fact, don't know disease unless we know health. We don't know pain unless we know pleasure. It's through the contrast of these things that we understand suffering. And you can see this in your own life. We have relative suffering. For instance, uh, earlier, Therese mentioned sitting in the draft of an open door and a, a cool draft. Now, actually, if she'd been outside in freezing temperature, lost in the mountains for a week, and she was brought in this room, she would be very happy. <laughs> she wouldn't consider that suffering at all. In the wintertime, we suffer because it's not warm enough. In the summer, we suffer because it's not cool enough, and it bounces up and down, up and down. And even more extreme things. You know, small little pains and so forth are nothing when you have really serious heavy pain. You're grateful to have some small little sliver in your finger. So that's one interesting thing about suffering, and a very important thing about suffering, and therefore something about evil. The fact of uh, suffering, the fact of misfortune, is a relative fact. Um, someone mentioned death, and it also has its opposite, life, life and death. But if we analyze all the other forms of suffering, generally we see that they relate somehow to death. They can be suffering in themselves, pain is suffering itself, but it also uh, arouses the fear of death. All the things that we consider suffering are somehow a threat to the integrity and the well-being of who we think we are. So even emotional sufferings, loss and so forth, raises this question of who we are, and it raises, in a very deep level, the specter of our own mortality. We get a splinter, we don't think of death. But the closer we come to death, an interesting thing happens. All these problems that you have, all these complaints vanish. Life becomes very simple. It's just life or death. And the only good is to go on living, and the evil is death. And this starts to present us with this idea of something cosmic. Because after all, we think of death as something final. Certainly our biological reaction to death is as though it were something final and ultimately unfathomable. Whatever your beliefs in heavens and hells or reincarnation or whatever, really we have to admit that death is just an enormous mystery. It's like we can look ahead. We plan for tomorrow and the next day and we plan for our retirement and our golden years and all this sort of stuff. We can even imagine ourselves and there are practices, meditative practices, where you imagine yourself dying, the body disintegrating, the mind losing control and so forth. But we come to a place here where there's just a blank, a void. And it's interesting because our life is uh, surrounded on both sides with this, like bookends. Because if you trace backwards and you try and reconstruct, even if you don't remember, but intellectually reconstruct, well, I must have been one years old and then I must have been an infant and I must have been in my mother's womb and so forth. But there comes a place where it just sort of disappears. Where were you before you were conceived? And so our life appears as a bubble on this vast sea of the unknown. This little bubble that we know itself is ephemeral. And this is what gives this question a sort of a cosmic character, as the dictionary says. The question of evil, the question of suffering, is ultimately the question of death. 
And this raises the question, is there some cosmic force that causes all this? And when we think of this cosmic force, if we're going to think of it in terms of evil, we think of it as a cosmic force sort of doing this on purpose. Uh, because after all, if it's a materialist universe, if everything's just random and by chance, the term evil doesn't really apply here. There's no malignant motivation going on. So evil has this sense, this at least a connotation of a purpose, a meaning, a plan here. So when we ask this question about evil, we also have to ask the question about good. Is there a cosmic force for good? And these are, of course, the great questions of religion. And uh, different religions seem to answer this question differently, and different levels of religion answer this question differently. And those of you who are here for the first time and haven't heard me talk before, I make a distinction between exoteric religion, outward religion, and esoteric or inward religion. And if we study religions, we find the exoteric forms of religion can be quite different. Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam are so different that people are willing to go to war over it and fight each other and kill each other over it. But if we look to the mystics of all the traditions, we find a tremendous universality of testimony. And this is what I mean by the inward or esoteric core of various traditions. So if we look exoterically, we see that in many religions, this cosmic force of evil is personified. There's the devil, or there's Satan. In the Buddhist tradition, there's Myra, Yama, and Hinduism, the god of death, and so forth. These are personifications of this idea of a, a cosmic force. And there's also then, of course, opposed to that, cosmic forces for good. God, or Jehovah, or Allah, or Vishnu, or whatever. So there's this duality in the exoteric presentation of religion. And even in what we call primitive quote-unquote religions, by which we mean just the earliest in time, there is a sense of this. There are good spirits and evil spirits. In the earliest forms of shamanism, there were black shamans and white shamans, meaning that what kinds of spirits they dealt with. And not quite the sense of this cosmic evil. These were local evils and tied to all the things that you mentioned, disease and so forth. But really this idea of a cosmic duality as far as we can tell, arises in one particular tradition, and that's Zoroastrianism, which developed somewhere around the 6th century BC in Persia. And we don't really know much about the beginnings of Zoroastrianism, and I would suspect, and this is pure speculation, that it didn't start off this way. But it developed into a very strongly dualistic religion. There were two cosmic forces. There was Ahura Mazda, the god of good, and there was Ahriman, who was the cosmic force of evil. And the human role in all this was to choose sides, so to speak, to fight on the side of good in this great cosmic battle between good and evil. And this was the worldview of this particular religion, and it had tremendous influence. It spread both east and west. And a lot of our ideas that we're familiar with in Judaism and Christianity, exoteric ideas anyway, stem from this Persian influence. And so we get these personifications, the devil, Mara, kind of versions of this ultimate cosmic force of evil. However, in the East particularly, evil is still not ultimately regarded as 
real. This dualism, it may be very strong, and people certainly, uh, at an exoteric level, go and pray to various gods and so forth for fortune rather than misfortune. But there is an underlying understanding that somehow this dualism is not real. That it doesn't really exist. That the absolute reality, Brahman and Hinduism or Buddha nature and Buddhism and so forth, is beyond all duality, including good and evil. And so good and evil are relative to each other, but they don't have this ultimate cosmic finality about them. They are produced, in fact, both in Buddhism and in Hinduism, by this mysterious power called Maya. Maya is the force of uh, illusion, or delusion, actually. Maya creates this world of apparent duality. Not just duality between good and evil, but all the dualities you could imagine. Long and short, tall and small, uh, light and dark, all these dualities, as the Buddha said, are falsely imagined. In Hinduism, Brahman is the ultimate reality. And the idea is that Maya superimposes this universe of opposites on this unified reality in which there are no distinctions. Brahman is the one without a second. There is nothing besides Brahman. So we can't really say Brahman is good because then we have to say that already imposes the idea of something bad. We already made a distinction. In fact, even the name Brahman itself is about our need for language. Brahman's always described ultimately as being without attributes, without distinctions, without names. As uh, Campbell quotes from one of the Upanishads, Brahman is what no tongue has ever soiled. I love that one. So this whole idea of suffering and evil is ultimately somehow an illusion. It's part of this metaphorical world. And I say metaphorical world because it's an as-if world. It's as if there is pleasure and pain in these things. And ultimately, it's as if there is life and death. But what produces this? Why do we live in this apparent world of dualities, which is the world of bondage, in both in Hindu and Buddhist terms? Shankara has a little quote about this. Shankara says, Ignorance is nowhere except in the mind. The mind is filled with ignorance, and this causes the bondage of birth and death. Interesting. He says, the error of identifying Atman with non-Atman, that is the ultimate with what is not ultimate, is the cause of man's birth, death, and rebirth. This false identification is created by the mind. Therefore, the wise who know reality have declared that the mind is full of ignorance. So really, uh, according to Shankara, the root of this world which includes evil and suffering and so forth, the root of it all is ignorance. You might say ignorance creates the world. The same thing is true in Buddhism. Nargajuna, the great Buddhist philosopher, says, the root of suffering is clinging 
The root of clinging is craving. The root of craving is ignorance. <coughs> and you can start to see why he says this from your own experience. The root of suffering is clinging. If we analyze everything we mentioned earlier about what is suffering, we see that there's a clinging, an attachment, a holding on to. Heartbreak was mentioned. Heartbreak is because we are holding on to something we had. Health. Disease, we feel a suffering because we have this cling, this notion that we should be healthy all the time. And so healthy seems to be to us the normal state, and we think of disease as somehow a perversion of that. This is only from our limited point of view. The little viruses that creep into your body, they have to eat too. From their point of view, you're their food. And from their point of view, disease is the normal state. And when you shoot your body full of penicillin and kill them, from their point of view, that's a, a tremendous calamity and a great misfortune. Hunger was mentioned. From our point of view, not to have anything to eat is a calamity. From a chicken or a turnip's point of view, being eaten is the calamity. And for us to go hungry and not eat them, that's good. That's healthy. So there's this business of clinging, of wanting one half of the world, which we label as good, as pleasant, pleasurable, all those things. And that half of the world that we push aside, we try to anyway, we label as evil, suffering, and so forth. And what is the root of this clinging in the Buddhist analysis? It's a craving. It's this wanting, this grasping. And the root of the grasping is ignorance. And why? Because we think that we can have the top half of the cake without the bottom half, so to speak. We think that these things are separable. We think that there is such a thing as health without disease. And there is no such thing as health without disease. It's our ignorance of this basic reality of the world that causes our suffering and our delusions and causes the appearance of this dualistic world, this metaphorical world that we live in. But if we were enlightened, if we saw things clearly, we would see, as the Buddha said, that all duality is falsely imagined falsely imagined. That is ignorance. And that's the opposite of seeing clearly and truly. And this isn't a question of an intellectual knowledge, quite obviously. Because we can have an intellectual understanding of these things, and it doesn't put an end to uh, our suffering, and it doesn't put an end to our sense of living in a world of opposites. Now, many people think that uh, the Eastern religions are all about harmonizing opposites. And in a certain sense, it's a very good idea to try to balance opposites out in your life. There's a very wise rule that's both East and West, moderation in all things. And almost all traditions would agree with that. But that's not an ultimate truth. That's a guide of how to get along in this world, so to speak. The yin and the yang and all that stuff. These are all products of our delusion, ultimately. What the mystic is about, what the esoteric 
truth here is that reality transcends these opposites. It's not about spending your life trying to do a juggling act. It's about trying to see through completely all these opposites. And when that is seen, then the problem of good and evil vanishes. It's not that good triumphs over evil. It's that good and evil are seen as merely being relative aspects of life, not ultimate aspects of life. So there is no cosmic force of evil, ultimately, in the Eastern traditions. Now let's look at the Western view, which was more heavily influenced, by the way, by Zoroastrianism and the uh, personification of the cosmic force of evil, the devil and Satan and so forth, play a much stronger role, at least exoterically. And this has presented a, a huge theological conundrum, particularly for Christian theologians. Because God is supposed to be all-powerful, and God is supposed to be all-good. Now, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, then where does the devil stand in all this? If the devil has true power, is a true cosmic force in its own right, independent of God, then God's not all-powerful. Then there's a rival cosmic power in the world. But that can't be. And this is why, to the credit of the Catholic Church, uh, has always regarded, ultimately, uh, from a theological point of view, dualism as heresy. And all through the early stages of the Catholic Church, the heresies they battled were the heresies of dualism, which came from Persia and were very influenced by Zoroastrianism. Manichaeism, the Albigensian heresy, the Cathars. I'm not saying that the methods the Catholic Church used to uh, do battle with them were acceptable from a spiritual point of view. But to engage theologically in debate, which is, for instance, what Augustine did, he debated with uh, people he considered heretics, and initially heresy wasn't something you went out and, and people you burned. Heresy was an idea you defeated you know, intellectually and through debate. This was the original idea. And the Catholic Church has always maintained this. The devil is not a cosmically independent force from a theological point of view. Everything happens by the will of God. And throughout the Middle Ages, it was very interesting, this was recognized by common sayings like, have a good journey, God willing. You always bowed to this recognition that behind everything, God was the ultimate architect, the ultimate puller of strings, not the devil. So that the idea is that God, for whatever reasons, allows the devil to operate in the world. So the devil operates by the permission of God. In the story of Job, we see this. The devil comes to God and says, look at your servant Job. He's an upright man, but let me go and tempt him a little bit and cause him some suffering, and we'll see what happens. And God says, okay, devil, go see what you can do. The devil couldn't do this without God. So this was the Catholic Church's answer that, no, the devil is not actually an independent cosmic force in the same sense as he is in this dualistic uh, worldview. But then this raises the question, how can God be all good? Because, I mean, after all, then God's got to bear the responsibility. If God's letting the devil run around doing all this mischief, then, you know, ultimately God's responsible, right? And this has been a serious problem, and it's a problem today. I've talked to... Uh, 
people who have been Catholics or have thought about joining the Catholic Church. And one of the biggest problems in Christianity today is people, you know, cannot accept this. How can God let this stuff happen? And the devil is just an intermediary here. You can even dispense with the devil and say God's ultimately responsible. Well, you know, why is there disease? Why is there this stuff in the world? And frankly, I don't know from an exoteric point of view of any good solution to that problem. So we have to look deeper in the West. And if we look to the mystics of the Western tradition, we find something very interesting. Let me read you a little bit from Julian of Norwich, who's one of the great medieval Christian mystics. And she says about sin, O wretched sin, where are you? You are nothing. For I saw that God is in everything. I did not see you. And when I saw that God has made everything, I did not see you. And when I saw that God is in everything, I did not see you. And when I saw that God does everything that is done, the less and the greater, I did not see you. And so I am certain that you are nothing. Here's the direct experience of a mystic seeing reality, which she expresses in a Christian terms, and she sees no sin anywhere. Not in God, not in anything God created, not anywhere. And of course, in Christianity, sin is the cause of suffering, original sin. All our toiling by the sweat of the brow, and women giving birth in pain and suffering, all this followed from original sin. So this insight, which comes from a direct Gnostic revelation is known among the mystics of the West as well as the East. Dionysius the Arapagate, who's the father of medieval Christian mysticism, says, Evil is neither in demons nor ourselves as essential evil, but is a privation and a lapse from the perfection of our own true goodness. A Buddhist would completely agree with that. A Buddhist might change the one word from her own true nature. A lapse from. It has this idea of a lapse from. Meister Eckhart says, another great Christian mystic, and if we see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of every kind of multiplicity and distinction. What one is that? The one without a second. The one without attributes. The one without distinctions. The same one that Shankara talks about. So he's saying that all duality is falsely imagined, just like the Buddha. If we could see things truly, and then we would see that they were one without a second. So the answer in the West, among mystics anyway, to this question is, no, there is no ultimate cosmic evil. Ultimately, there is no evil, period. It's somehow a product of our ignorance. We don't see things clearly. We see through a glass darkly. Then why do we have talk of Myra? Why do we have Satan? What is the devil? Is this all just meaningless? No, it's not meaningless at all. And it has to do with, from a mystic's point of view, the nature of this world of illusion, if you like. And I say this all the time. In the West, we think of uh, illusion or delusion as being equivalent to meaningless or fictional. This is a metaphorical world, an as-if reality, a fictional reality. But in point of fact, 
It is precisely art. It is precisely fiction. It is precisely these things that are meaningful. Just because Hamlet isn't real doesn't mean Hamlet is meaningless. Hamlet is loaded with meaning and significance. And in truth, it's reality that is meaningless. This world is meaningful because this world points to reality. Reality is the meaning of this world. But reality, there's no meaning to reality beyond reality. Reality is the absolute. God is the absolute. The Tao is the absolute. So this world and everything in this world and the whole play of this world is itself, you could say, a drama whose significance is God, whose significance is that reality. And within that drama, we encounter the devil, and we encounter Satan, and we encounter Myra. And our problem is we tend to project that because we ourselves experience ourselves as separate from the world, as little subjects, selves, eyes, living in this world of others outside, we encounter the devil and Myra and Satan and all that always outside. So uh, your neighbor is the devil, or uh, depending on your politics, the Republicans are the devil, or the Democrats are the devil. We don't you know, think quite so crudely in this culture, but it comes pretty close to what would you say about a Hitler? And what we don't realize is the only true Satan, the only true devil, the only true Myra is the delusion of self that is self-created, so to speak. It is our own selves projected out there. And the value of personification from a spiritual point of view is always in the struggle to liberate yourself you start to see the old self, the ego self, the selfish self as the obstacle. And this is purely describing a psychological experience that people have on a spiritual path. At a certain point, when you begin to have uh, real insight and real freedom from this clinging, this craving, this attachment and so forth, you still experience this arising in you. It's been conditioned, at least since your birth, and if you have a worldview that includes other things, since beginningless time. And you don't just drop it overnight. And what you begin to experience is the cause of your own suffering. It's not evil in this cosmic ultimate sense. It's not like there's something evil about you. As Julian of Norwich said, she was shown everything. She didn't see any evil as you experience your own cravings, your own attachments, you recognize that this produces suffering in yourself. And then you go through a period that seems like a battle in a relative sense. And all mystics know this. Al-Ghazali, who was a Sufi mystic, he was writing for a quite exoteric Islamic audience. Just like Christians, they project Satan out there and so forth. And he writes about his own spiritual experience and about his own struggle to go on a spiritual path. And he was in a very high position in the Islamic uh, educational world. He was a teacher, a respected teacher. And every day he described, he'd wake up in the morning and he would 
make resolve to go on the spiritual path, to follow those Sufis. And Satan would come and whisper in his ear, well, you better not give up this position. It might not be so easy to get it back again. And you've worked hard to get here and so forth. And by the end of the day, his resolve would have crumbled. Now, he knows perfectly well, and he writes about this. This is not some outside force that's entered into his soul or stuff. It's his own ego self, which itself is not ultimately real. But having said all this, and having talked about now how this idea of a Satan or a devil arises, and the use that can be made of it psychologically, as long as we realize what's happening, we're not projecting it out onto other people, there still remains this question, well, where does ignorance come from? How did we get ignorant in the first place? Is this the will of God that we became ignorant? And ultimately, there's going to be no satisfactory answer that can be given in words. And I can give you two answers that perhaps are fingers pointing. The first answer is more philosophical answer, and I'll give that one first because it's usually the most boring. When we ask the question, when or how did ignorance come about, we are asking a question still within the framework of the metaphorical world, one of whose most basic delusions is the delusion of time. So to say, when did the fall take place, as they say in the West, you know, this fall from grace, when did this happen, is to ask a question about time, but time itself is a delusion. This is why in the East they say, ignorance had no beginning. Both the Hindus and the Buddhists say, ignorance had no beginning. It has an end, but it has no beginning. It has no beginning because time itself is a product of Maya. So you can't answer the question in time. You'll end with a paradox. Don't they also say that uh, ignorance begins anew at every moment? Or or, or is that the same thing? Yes. There is no time. And so the... You've stolen my thunder. And so the place where ignorance begins is now. Very good, though. The place that ignorance begins is always now. And the place that it ends is always now. It's never in the past, and it's never in the future. And this is why there's this tremendous emphasis in mystical traditions about seeing what's going on now. Because you're eating the apple of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil every moment. The past is something we project out behind us, and the future is something we project out in front of us. And this is all there is. If you get lost in daydreams, you're still in the present. The present is what you cannot escape. To live in the present really means to become aware of what is going on. If you are lost in a daydreams, be very mindful of that. No, I am lost in a daydream. You see what I mean? If you're suffering over something in the past, heartbreak, and you're moaning over your lost lover and all that, from a spiritual point of view, living in the present means to know that this is what you're doing. Not to try and get rid of it and push it away. That's already trying to go to the future. You don't like this moment where you're uh, steeped in heartbreak, so you're trying to move ahead. Well, you can't move ahead. There's no place to move ahead. Living the present simply means this knowing. Because, I'll tell you something, if you become aware, I am wallowing in self-pity, you will start to see this is the cause of suffering. 
And then you'll start to see the self-pity as a petty little narrow self that's, you know, pulling you in one direction. You'll see this is how these descriptions of a spiritual path, metaphorical as they are, come about. The descriptions of what people experience. So ultimately, this question of uh, where did ignorance start, it didn't start in any place or time in the past. It's a problem of the present. And enlightenment is a solution of the present, if you like. That's the philosophical answer. Now I'll give you the poetic answer, the mythic answer, which perhaps you'll find more meaningful. Because, of course, this is a question that's asked in every tradition and every religion and so forth. And it was asked in Muhammad's time. Muhammad asked Allah, why this world? Which Allah, by the way, describes as a sport and a pastime, not as being ultimately real. And so what's the point of all this? What's the meaning of all this? And Allah's answer was, tell them I am a treasure who long to be known. The power of consciousness, the fullness of consciousness, the infinite potential of consciousness has to find this expression. And all these distinctions, all these worlds, all these forms that consciousness imagines is only the possibilities of the forms that consciousness could imagine. This is God, the treasure longing to be known. And this world, as again the Quran says, everything in this world is a sign and a symbol of God. And we ourselves are the, if you like, vehicle by which consciousness realizes its forms. And ultimately by which consciousness realizes itself in its forms. So, whether you know it or not, you are the way that God investigates God. Through you, through your experience, through your living, through your struggles and all this stuff, and primarily through this struggle to know yourself, to realize yourself. So, any questions or comments? I have the belief that some people who maybe feel that they're suffering so much they would welcome death. I wanted that to be recognized, that some people do welcome death. Yes, I think that's very true. That there's many, many cases of people who've been in tremendous physical pain and death looks like a release. But again, it's still this relative thing. Most of us, most of the time, death is the, you know, the thing we fear the most. And most of us are willing to go through a good deal of suffering before we get to that point. Operations and radiation and chemotherapy and all sorts of horrendous things in order to buy a few more years of life, you know. And so it's like coming in out of the cold. There's a point where the balance tips and then death looks like a release and, uh, you know, a mercy. And that happens too. But then it's in relation to something that is, seems even a greater evil. Yeah. It just points out the nature of suffering and evil, you know, that there is always going to be something worse. I think that too, sometimes the people who are terminal, they come to an acceptance where it's not, um, it no longer becomes a dual thing. I mean, in other words, they're no longer going, I hurt so bad I'd rather die. They're not going, they're not going any of these things. It's just acceptance. It's okay, fine. This it, is going to be okay. You know, in uh, many traditions, but particularly emphasized in the Tibetan tradition, death is looked on as a great opportunity. 
And many of the practices are preparation for death. And if you aren't enlightened in the course of your life, uh, you have a wonderful opportunity at the moment of death, if you prepared for it. Alan Wallace, who studied Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism very intensely, described it this way. He said, life is, a, in a certain sense, an obstacle. It's full of distractions and it works against you. But death works for you. Death starts to strip these things away that are distractions. Suddenly, nature is working for you. And if you're prepared to let them go as that's happening, it's a marvelous, dramatic opportunity for enlightenment. Um, that, that brings up a point uh, here. I would say that um, there is not really one objective reality until you get very high up there. So one could say that for certain people, evil does exist. For certain people, um, evil spirits really do exist. And they have a kind of reality, given, given that perspective. Oh, certainly. And in this sense, let's not make any mistake about this. To say that this world isn't ultimately real is not to say that in a relative sense that it's not to poo-poo people's suffering. Let's put it that way. If you're in a nightmare and somebody is running after you with a hatchet, you're frightened. And you wake up and you say, well, thank God it was only a nightmare. It wasn't real. But for you, in the experience, it can be very real. And perhaps Jesus was making some gesture of understanding when he was referring then to evil spirits, casting out evil spirits. And, uh, I mean, the casting out of evil spirits, that was pretty basically part of scripture. I mean, I wonder... If... But I think this is, uh, and this is in all spiritual traditions, and the part of the tradition that addresses itself to healing and psychological problems and, and whatnot. You know, the belief in evil spirits and demons and possession is not just Christian, it's worldwide. It goes back to uh, shamanic times. In fact, all disease in shamanic cultures is attributed to evil spirits or curses or something. This wasn't specific to Christianity at all. It was part of the worldview of the time. Mm -hmm. So what he was doing is uh, performing healing functions to demonstrate physically what is needed between you and God. The healing of this breach, of this separateness, of this sense that there's a division here. And he told his own uh, followers, you know, they were very impressed with all these miracles he performs. And at one point he says, for God's sake, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Luke, he says, don't be impressed with all the miracles that I can cast out demons and control the serpents and things like that. Rejoice because your names are written in the kingdom of heaven. That's what's important. And constantly he would talk about how his miracles and stuff were just signs to attract people, to demonstrate something. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the focus of what he was about. Yeah. He was about understanding that I and the Father are one. You know, it's very funny. I decided one time, I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to be God, and I'm going to write down a perfect, everything's going to be perfect. And, ah, oh, what a mess. <laughs> 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 you know, you just at least I couldn't do it, okay? I couldn't invent a perfect world. It was like, okay, I didn't want any spiders, but then, well, then, it was like, okay, then what are these birds going to eat, you know? And then, then I couldn't have birds. Well, okay, I couldn't have birds, then I couldn't have... Yeah, and it just... that's, a, that's a wonderful exercise. I like that. Everybody, everybody who complains to God should try this exercise. <laughs> Well, on that profound note... <laughs>
why don't we call the formal part of this uh, over, and you're welcome to stay and have some tea and look through the library, and uh, if you have any questions uh, about the center, you can ask uh, myself or Jennifer as the librarian, or Mike, who's the other board member.